But the reason Tupac came about is because I kept saying, oh, gosh, I mean, I loved everyone, but I kept saying, we need a, a rapper that is about social justice, that gets some of the same things. I kept looking for someone that was kind of like me, that read like crazy and that could tackle issues that we don't talk about. Public Enemy was too radical. Like there were artists that were um, in hip hop that were using their voices, yeah. but they couldn't penetrate the schools because they were too extreme. And I was looking for somebody that could straddle these worlds like I could. And one day Lawanda, who was one of the art group members said there was a kid that just came from Baltimore and he was it. So this went on for some months because I didn't know if she knew what it was, mm -hmm. but she's the reason Pop came to the group and she was right. Hey there, what's up guys? Welcome to another episode of the Allison Interviews podcast. This episode is special for me on a personal level as well as a professional level. I had the great honor of speaking to a woman named Layla Steinberg. And for people that are big fans of Tupac Shakur and people who are fans of hip hop and kind of hip hop historians <laughs> like, like I am, would know who Layla is because she has a very famous workshop that she has conducted in California for many, many years, for I think going on three decades at this point, called the Mike Sessions, that she has run from Los Angeles up to the Bay Area. And what's very notable about this particular creative workshop for young people is it is actually the workshop that Tupac Shakur attended when he first moved from Baltimore up to the Bay Area of uh, Oakland, California when he was a teen. And it was at Layla's workshop that he kind of not found his voice because he had already been a, a pretty prolific poet, but he was introduced to Layla through a mutual friend and became kind of the star pupil of uh, Layla's workshop which led to him traveling around with her doing poetry and rap music. And she and Tupac really were very kindred souls. And as you'll see when, or you'll hear when you listen to this interview, both very socially conscious, very politically conscious, very deep heart-centered human beings. So they really had a meeting of the minds and had so much in common. And it was through Layla's workshop that I, I truly believe that after Tupac Shakur left Baltimore, Maryland, where he attended the Baltimore School for the Arts. And from what I understand, he was pretty dejected when he had to get on a bus and move out to California and leave school in Baltimore. But when he hooked up with Layla and her workshop, he was able to find an outlet for his creativity, his poetry, his rap. And for his message, which back in the day, at the very beginnings of his career, when he was a budding rapper, he was very politically conscious. He wanted to use poetry and rap music to change the world and to get messaging out there and to further the work of his mom, the late Afeni Shakur, and everything that his mom had done with the Black Panthers. And he just had all of this drive and energy in him to want to make the world a better place, particularly for people of color. 
And it was through Layla that he was eventually introduced to Atron Gregory and got to audition for Digital Underground and the rest is history. So Layla kind of gives a glimpse into a young Tupac's life and uh, how he got involved with her workshop and also everything that's been going on with her workshop since because the Mike Sessions has been in session now for, I believe, well over 30 years. And some other really interesting people have taken part in her workshop. Actor Omari Hardwick actually got his start and was discovered and got his agent, his original agent, through Layla's workshop. I believe that NFL player Deshaun Jackson also attended her workshop. She's kind of a legend and it was really interesting to sit down and speak with her. Everything is done now through her nonprofit organization called Aim for the Heart. So if you want to learn more about the amazing work that Layla Steinberg has been doing for over three decades, you can visit aimfortheheart.org. That's aim number four, theheart.org. And you can also follow Layla on Instagram at Layla underscore Steinberg. And of course, you can follow me on Instagram at the Allison Kugel. So let me get out of the way and get this rolling and enjoy this in-depth conversation with the one and only Miss Layla Steinberg. I just want to kind of do a quick introduction for people who don't know, although I think millions of people do. So you were a lifelong mentor to the late Tupac Shakur, and you were his first manager. And you also are known for having a creative workshop called the Mike Sessions, which you've had. Did they, is that going all the way back to the 1980s that it was called the Mike Sessions? I think in the 90s is when I started using the Mike Sessions as a name. I changed the name all the time. In the late 80s, I started workshopping and it was the Poetry Circle. It was my dance company collective. I had different names, but I locked it in in the 90s. and really refined my intention of what I was doing. And I wasn't lifelong because I didn't meet Pac until he was a teenager. So I I don't mean childhood mentor. I mean, teenager. (laughs) I just want to make sure I'm not misrepresenting, but no, 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 no. But we're going to get to all that. But you were raised in Los Angeles, correct? I'm born in LA. Yes. Born in LA. So when you came up to the Bay Area, you I'm guessing you were in your 20s at that time? I first moved to the Bay in my early 20s for college. My mom moved to the Bay when I was in my teens, so early teens. So I kind of straddled the Bay in LA. I always felt like the Bay was my second home, so... Okay, so what was it about the atmosphere in the Bay Area that inspired you to start this creative workshop? And was it was it poetry? Was it spoken word? What like what was it exactly at the beginning? I would say that it really started in Los Angeles. I was at Crescent Heights Elementary School. It was, you know, I'm a child of the 60s in a city that was in transition, that was finding its voice. I was, I would say the first musical influence that woke me up was Marvin Gaye, what's going on, the Vietnam War was going. Mm -hmm. I lived in a neighborhood that 
before I was born was probably primarily Jewish and white, but by the time I was born was primarily black. So I went to school, elementary school with mostly black and brown kids. And we were kind of erupting as a city. There were protests going on about the war. I was nine years old. And that song really asked the question. And I loved that Marvin Gaye asked us what's going on. And even though I was so young, I felt it in my core. And I realized that when I was dancing or in after school activities, dancing, music, and sports eliminated race, gender, sexuality. Yes. I didn't feel like an other or that I didn't belong. I connected. And so I just fell in love with the possibility of art as a child. And you fall in love with the possibility of art to transcend race and culture and bring us together to give us messages, to mobilize us, to question us, to hold us accountable. And I couldn't make total sense of what I was beginning to understand, but I knew I had to be part of it. And that's where I felt at home. And there was um, a center on Vermont, inner city cultural center. And I don't remember the first time I took classes there, but through elementary school, middle school, high school, I always even after we moved from Los Angeles to the West side, I was always trying to get back to inner city cultural center into the music. So I would say that my first love outside of relationship and family was music and art and where we could come together as people and not exist within our borders and our boundaries, but find our humanity with artists and and the power of art as a mobilizing vehicle was something that I saw with the Vietnam War and then many other movements after that. But that was the first tangible memory I have of artists bringing people together to protest and and you have you have an interesting eclectic background yourself. Your mother is a Mexican American. Your father is uh, European Jewish. My mother is Sephardic, so her family is Turkish, Middle Eastern, Mexican. And I, it's always interesting because do you claim the culture? Do you claim ethnicity? You know, the history of Jews and and their migration and travel makes it complicated. So as a child, I didn't know what I was. My family, my mom's family all spoke Spanish, French, Turkish. Was I Turkish? Was I Mexican? Underlying all of that was that my mom's family are Sephardic and my father's family are Ashkenazic Jews. But Jewish on both sides. Okay, that's a lot of people don't know that about us that well, first of all, we are a very mixed people, because we've we migrated around the planet so much. And that we have, there are Sephardic Jews, there are Ashkenazi Jews, there there are Jews of color, you know, of, of coming out of Africa. I mean, like we're we're and just my a- mom is definitely very brown. You know, I look like my dad, so 
people would see my mom and not identify her as Sephardic. She looks like she's Mexican or Middle Eastern or a hybrid of something dark. So So you had like an innate curiosity about culture and about bringing different cultures together. I had an awareness that I was identity challenged and I didn't feel like I belonged anywhere. I wanted to belong. And so the challenge of my own identity and confusion around it and my love of the community I grew up in and that Black people in their struggle didn't isolate. I was so embraced and welcomed in the Black community. And I didn't see that in the Jewish community because Jews in their struggle have isolated. And then the struggle of Sephardics and Ashkenazic Jews is quite interesting. And so I honestly, at a certain point, didn't want to belong to any group. I wanted to kind of erase me and figure out a way to serve so people didn't have to feel like me. I think that was my... It all makes sense now. I I get it because I was trying to put the pieces together. How did you end up where you ultimately arrived? So let's talk about this workshop that is, has now become very famous. So you're in, you, it starts in Los Angeles, you move to the Bay Area, and you- I, are- I need to give credit, actually, in terms of really how I even thought I would be sitting in the center of people, young people, old people. Okay. When I was in high school, I moved from LA, predominantly Black school, to Santa Monica, And that was quite a culture shock. I had never gone to all white affluent schools. So when I moved to Santa Monica, I hated the school I went to. I didn't, I thought it was very out of place there. It was such a different experience. And I ended up in an alternative school, which allowed for me at a young age to do advanced placement classes at the college. So I I would go in the afternoons and I would take classes at Santa Monica City College. And there was a woman from the school board that came to the alternative school one day. Her name's Peggy Shackleton. And she said that she was looking for a group of young people. She wanted to leave a workshop before school. And it was going to be a workshop where we would read together and we would discuss things about the world, religion, philosophy. And she announced it in the auditorium to a large group of kids. And seven of us showed up. And the thing that intrigued me, I loved reading. That was definitely my escape as a child. I would walk to the library when we lived in L.A. I couldn't wait to get my new books. So as somebody that always wanted to escape something that I didn't feel good about books gave me the freedom to see the world. And it's where I I started developing an interest in history and philosophy. And so she said she was going to give us a book. So seven of us came and the first book she gave us was Siddhartha. And so I'm in eighth grade reading Siddhartha. And that was the beginning of this very interesting workshop she did. Nothing like what I do now, but it was the seeds that were planted. And so from eighth grade until graduating um, in 12th grade, this group of us met 
and I'm still close with the group today. I oh, it's awesome. been what. 48 years. Oh, wow. Um, I still have all the books on my shelf from Peggy. She gave me books, you know, after I graduated and went on once or twice a year, a book would pop up in my mailbox. And so, yeah, I, I need to give Peggy credit because she never, ever let us know what her personal opinion was. She facilitated a process with a group of young minds where she introduced ideas and concepts, but we never knew what religion she was, who her right. life partner, husband, nothing. She never gave us her personal story. And I thought it was so strange. And I wanted so much to know, well, what do you believe in or what do you think? But what she did was she posed questions and guided us to research. And no one had ever done that before. And so she more than any teacher that I ever had, helped us to learn to think critically, mm -hmm. to challenge propaganda, to challenge the status quo. And I knew her most of my life until she passed away. And I never had access to anything inside her personal world. And so she set a precedent for me of what it is to bring people to education what it is to wake up minds because she woke me up. And so, so, you, so your creative workshop was really your own form of activism and of giving a voice to young people from underserved communities who maybe didn't feel empowered, didn't feel like they had a voice. I mean, is that fair to say? It, it actually, it's definitely what prompted me. It was where I could find my service it was a dual function. People came for artist development. Mm -hmm. That's what they thought. They thought I was so connected and I was in the mix and I could help them. And my intention was human development. If I get artists to understand kind of this process to read, to have hard conversations, we could get the next generation of art artists, activists on the front lines. And, and one other important person that I met was a man named Jack Healy. And Jack lived in the, the canyon, in Laurel Canyon. Mm -hmm. And he started Amnesty International. And I was blessed to go to his home and, and be around him and see how he utilized artists for his activism and helped shape careers because of it. So I... I kind of wanted to do what I saw Jack Healy do, not for amnesty, but for justice work and for education. And so I had a different agenda, but what he did was incredible. And he launched careers, so many careers. He had so many people working with him. And so I initially created this workshop so that I could do school tours. And the workshop would be where I would give prompts, topics, books, and we'd have discourse. And then we would create 90-minute assemblies so I could go into the schools with messages and not have to work under their body, under their traditional ideas about what we need to educate people on. And education wasn't relevant for poor people, for people of color in white areas because I unpack that for a second 
you said education wasn't relevant to a lot of people of color. Do you mean because they had, it was more about survival? No, because we have primarily had white education. And so in privileged areas, we supplement it. And so we make sure kids have arts and humanities and all of the supplemental things. And then in formal education, we don't tell the truth when we talk about history. It's not inclusive history. We give a very linear story so that we can continue to indoctrinate instead of educate. And I didn't want to be part of indoctrinating, which is why I didn't go get a credential and become an educator. I wanted to challenge education and bring in what we don't contribute and what we don't utilize in education. Um, so now let, let's go back. Let's go back in time. Let's go back to around 89, I'm thinking. 89. So what was that, the workshop that Tupac Shakur ultimately wandered into, was that, tell, that was tell me. That was my living that, room. That was your living room. And tell me how that workshop went. Was it so reading? I started it because I knew I wanted to do these high school tours and these assemblies. Hip hop okay. was not recognized as an art form at the time. It was really not a category. And I mean, I had an interesting marketing background. My uncle did campaigns and I worked for him when I was young. So I learned a lot about marketing and strategy. And so I was like, oh, I'm going to take rappers that, you know, I know that want to get in front of large crowds. I'm going to get them to do my program. And so they'll hit the market. It'll help their careers. And I'll get volunteers to do these assemblies. So I did an audition. I just made flyers back then. We didn't have media. So I printed, I think, 500 flyers that said auditions. I'm looking for singers, poets, rappers, dancers to do high school tours with me. I, I still have the flyer somewhere. And there's a cultural center that was in Petaluma. And I asked the director if I could utilize the cultural center for my auditions and it would bring all these people to the center. They would learn about their center. And I would teach dance classes at her center. So I had some exchanges with her. But this very small group, this hybrid group, I was going to have them meet at my place so we could write and work on these assemblies. And I thought I would get 20 people and hundreds and hundreds of kids showed up. There were lines all around the building into the neighborhood. I, I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't have security. It was okay. so crazy. I can't even tell you. And people thought I must be someone important if I was holding the audition. <laughs> That's why I tell people all the time, you can do anything. I don't even know what I was thinking. But all these people showed up. And I had a whole little group of teens that hung out and worked with me. And I made these note cards and Margot, who directed the center, was so shocked. She helped me. She was like, oh, my God, you didn't tell me. So she showed me how to organize the auditions because she had done it for dancers. And I took Margot's guidance and I took notes and I auditioned and taped all these people. And then I picked 11 people that I thought would be so great for my assemblies. And that's how it started. And I got this group and I, they were so amazing. I mean, I still talk to some of them. They're all doing their thing. 
But the reason Tupac came about is because I kept saying, oh, gosh, I mean, I loved everyone, but I kept saying, we need a, a rapper that is about social justice, that gets some of the same things. I kept looking for someone that was kind of like me, that read like crazy and that could tackle issues that we don't talk about. Public Enemy was too radical. Like there were artists that were um, in hip hop that were using their voices, yeah. but they couldn't penetrate schools because they were too extreme. And I was looking for somebody that could straddle these worlds like I could. And one day Lawanda, who was one of the art group members, said there was a kid that just came from Baltimore and he was it. So this went on for some months because I didn't know if she knew what it was. Mm -hmm. But she's the reason Pop came to the group and she was right. And did he already have some? I'm assuming because yeah, he was a poet. I'm not responsible for his creativity or his artistry. I definitely participated. Did he have lyrics to present? When did he? Yeah, he had lots of poems, poems, lyrics. Yeah, from the first poem I knew, and. I didn't know what I couldn't do. So, and that also comes with a certain level of privilege. That's really another interesting exploration and study. But when you come from a certain level of privilege, you're always told you can do anything and accomplish anything. So I just, I thought it was tangible to change the world. I thought it was tangible to change the hearts of the planet, the mind follows the heart. And if we could grab the hearts of people, we could transform them. And so I just thought it was so tangible that when the two of us connected, it was like, oh, we're about to make a massive difference. What I didn't understand was this industry, how toxic this world is. I didn't understand the money, the role of money and and what having that level of attention and access and money would do to all of us. And I think that the tragedy and what happened with Pac, and we don't have to repeat so much of that because people know that story. Oh, that ended, yeah. But what they don't understand and analyze and dissect in the way that we need to is the complication of how much money we make off talent and what that does to talent and the pressure that it does to a young gifted soul that really entered wanting to make a difference and the distractions and the difference with athletes. Cause we iconize athletes and artists, which is so disturbing. No 17 year old, 24 year old should be put on a pedestal. We should not look at, artists and athletes as the saviors or who we should look up to. We should appreciate the messaging and the ability to mobilize us. But what we do to them is so wrong. But the difference when you have an athlete that's at the peak of their career and an artist is that we keep athletes healthy so they perform. Right. get the best food, the best exercise. They get a very different trajectory. And artists, we keep them high. So they give us what they want. And I say we as system, not as Layla, because I, I don't I just have that. to I have to comment on that because I interviewed 
Juicy J recently. And what he talked about was that as he started to win awards and started to sell a lot of records, more and more people started offering him drugs. And what I said was, do you think that the music industry is kind of, there's almost like a conspiracy to keep artists high? And he's like, well, I really don't know. I don't think so. I hope not. But I really believe that there is. There absolutely is. I mean, back in the day with athletes, and you can trace some of this, I could say names, but I'd rather not right now. But there were athletes, because I started in an athletic world, and you can track certain coaches and their teams and the use of steroids and what happened to a lot of the athletes. Specifically, I worked with track and field athletes. You can look at certain teams and where are they now and how many of them had cancer, tumors, uh, mental health breakdowns. And you can look at what they were given for performance. That stopped and that changed. But early on, athletes were given really unhealthy steroids and things that damaged them for performance. Actors, musicians, entertainers, performers were given so much. They were given medications to wake up. They were given stuff to go to sleep. It started with prescriptions, then prescriptions turned to streets. And it is intentional and it is destructive and horrible. And then it becomes the example of lifestyles that all our kids buy into So I can definitely say that I participated in the damaging of family structure and healthy families with a lot of the music I supported and was part of because I didn't know. I didn't know the systemic issues that existed back then. I didn't know that what I thought was liberating initially with a lot of the rap artists that I work with would end up being the destruction of communities and families, that it would be the marketing of gang culture in a way that we can't fathom. And so I that's why I talk now and I think it's so important to deconstruct what happened and all of our roles in it. And I wasn't a big money participant, so I was never doing it for the money. I did make money. I did support my kids and my family in this business. But my primary intention was always the work and the education. Do you think that in the 90s, do you think that Tupac Shakur was exploited financially? Oh, he was. I don't think. I know. I witnessed it. I Well, what, what did you witness? I witnessed the direction of his career. I witnessed the power people that didn't want to hear my voice or my resistance or I I did choose to stop managing him, but I stayed close to the community, to the family. There were people making a ton of money from the beginning of his career until the end of his career. So when we're talking You know, I mean, even on a bad day back then, let's forget about all the ancillary ways to make money now. If you were an artist in the early 90s, you got an 8 to 12 point deal. Points are percentages. 
So if you look at a pie and you look at 100% and you look at back then CDs selling for $15 a piece and you sell a million, which he sold a lot more, right. you know, just look at the numbers and look at what an artist walks away with. And, and let's say he got 12 points. You pay your producer four of those 12, your manager. By the time you break that 12 points up, you really walk away with what? four or five points of your hundred. And that was typical that we're still talking about the exploitation of people and primarily people of color. And so it. Did he actually achieve millionaire or multimillionaire status or was that, was that posthumous that a Faney was able to get after he passed? He did, but didn't have access to it. I mean, especially at the end, should controlled everything. So yes, millions were made. He did own some houses. He saw a million. What's a million crimes? Right. About um, a million. Right. There were hundreds of millions made off of Tupac. There are people who own homes and property now off Tupac money. And it's not those of us that were there grinding and working. Like I never really saw a lot of Tupac money. Did Antron Gregory see a lot of Tupac money? Atron saw Tupac money, but even Atron didn't see the big Tupac money. Okay. Well, we know, I guess, who saw the big Tupac money. We know who's all the Tupac money. Yeah, right. And, you know, that's criminal. And that's probably why I still am in this industry, always looking to redefine business in it. That's why I'm in the Web3 space now. And, you know, I'm not interested and never wanted to be in Web3 and, the metaverse and crypto, but on a global level, I see the value of decentralized business, taking the middle people out, including myself, and empowering people to have ownership of their creativity, of their lives, of their careers. And at the end of the day, the people who really suffered from all this are always people of color, are always marginalized people. It's always the people who don't have the fight and the support for their fight. And it's disturbing, you know, to really come to terms and be honest about Mm. how vast the extremes are when it's who has and who doesn't. So, you know, still doing the work. (laughs) You mentioned in the past, or I, I think I saw or I read that you said that maybe, I don't know if it was towards the end of his life, but there were a lot of fights. Were the fights about trying to bring him back to his heart, his soul, his political roots, as opposed to like a gangster image and lyrics? I think that it was a a fight for his soul. It was a fight for him not to get consumed by the company he was in. I already saw him getting consumed by the lifestyle in the industry pre-Shug. He was fighting for his life then. I have to borrow this saying, but I think Malcolm X's story is really important. I think a lot of people rock Malcolm X hats and gear and don't even really know his story, never read his book. Tupac loved Malcolm X because he loved his journey. He loved that this man could 
come to terms with it, he made mistakes, that he had an entire transformation, which is why he left the nation. And it is the transformation that's important in this story and what it was to be in a radical fight for Black people and then his transition into Islam and true Islam embraced all people. And so his journey and to analyze and dissect his journey is important. I think Tupac's trajectory was the opposite. I think Tupac started out with this incredible vision and was always cause-based and his whole life he wanted to dedicate to making the difference. And what happened was he was surrounded. You cannot surround yourself by toxic things, toxic people, toxic behavior. You become what you want to save. And he is the classic example of being surrounded and sucked in and not having a way out, not being able to free himself from the clutches of that. And I'm also an example of bringing the streets into my home. Mm-hmm. It's Tupac was never a gangster. He that was not him. I was surrounded by more of those elements than he ever was. And he just wanted to make that difference. And he ended up really making horrible choices and really getting caught up. And so that that's the tragedy. It's such a tragedy. And did you ever have a lucid moment when you talked with him in the last year of his life where he said I kind of get what you're saying. I, well, I, I want it out. Yes, many. But that's what I'm saying. You Some lines you cross, you can't come back from. The deal with Suge was you can't come back from that. He couldn't well, when, just walk away. When did he want out? At what point did he want out? I don't think he ever wanted in. He just was in jail and desperate and made a move based on desperation and a move that he did not understand the cost or the consequence of because he was dealing with real gangsters. He is not alive today because he was dealing with real gang members. That was not him. And you can't surround, like even in my work and so much of my work in South LA and in juvenile halls and in prisons, it's complicated. People you know, some of the most amazing, incredible minds I've met incarcerated, but you are still affected and damaged by the consequence of your act and then the environment you are in. And so he thought he could do this deal, get out, give show these three records and have his freedom. It didn't work that way. It was never going to work that way. Was part of that deal being in character, you know, being in character and almost playing the part of a gangster, or was it coming from anger over what had happened to him? I think it was a. He always was angry. He always had a temper. I think he was very dramatic and amplified, and it all kind of got skewed. The lines get blurred, so his erupting looks like participation but there were two different eruptions happening and you know he never joined the bloods or the crips or anything he was not an active gang member he wanted to be the one that 
could organize the treaties between all. He thought he could go anywhere, walk anywhere, be in any hood. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really work that way. It doesn't. He was in over his head. When I was researching you, I saw that Omari Hardwick also attended your workshop. When was that? Oh, gosh. Omari was in in workshop. God, it's been like 18 years ago. I He got his agent out of my workshop and got his first, like, breaks out of workshop. So, yeah, Omari is a brilliant talent. He definitely grew in the space. I always want to hit him up and say, can I use all the footage of when you first started? Because I have all the early tapes of when he was working a lot of stuff out. What was he doing? Was he doing monologues? Was he doing poetry? Poems, monologues, raps, all of that. It's hard because Omari really hit as an actor and did so well. You get pigeonholed and they don't want to let you be the full artist you are. And Omari yeah. is a brilliant musician and, you know, rapper, singer. He could do it all. Yeah. And he wow. has not been supported in that journey. And, you know, I've tried to help Omari a number of times. I hit people up and it, it's a difficult industry. And, yeah. and that's where we need to change the face of owners of companies of the age and all of it. We have, we still have so much work to do. When but you yeah. say that, you mean that meaning that an artist should be able to move between acting, music, all, all of these different facets of entertainment. They say yeah, move and support it in it. It's very difficult. It depends on how you enter, but you know, when you're a big actor, it takes away from scheduling when you want to, you can't tour and do music. It, you you got to pick and choose. So it was easier for Tupac because he entered music and ended up in acting. So then you can bring your music into the acting. If you start in acting, it's really hard. They they don't want you taking time away. There's so much more money in, in acting. So is there, a, is there a role in a Tupac movie that was most like his true character? Was there any one role that you think was most like who he really was? Oh, gosh. No, I can't say that because the thing about acting that's different from music is in music, you give people you you pour your heart out and you get to know someone's soul and their being. In acting, you play all these other people. You run from you. And Tupac was a runner. And so... He also was challenged his whole journey. He went through so much that he loved escaping into different roles to explore all the different facets of himself. But, you know, people talk about Juice and what that character did to him. It definitely did something to him. Every character does something to the actor. You live and you breathe this character and it consumes you and it spills into your world. So that that definitely happened. That was a pivotal moment in that it changed something. It, every role changes something. And, you know, we never got to see who he could have become. That's tragic. He wrote three films. Maybe one day they'll come out and be published. And but his and mother movies. does, I guess now his sister, does anybody 
in possession of those screenplays? I think that, you know, the estate is in possession of everything. Who controls the decisions? I'm not part of that. So, yeah. To ask you, because it, I know we discussed it before uh, we were doing the interview, the arrest of Keefe D, do you feel any type of closure, relief, or do you feel like too little too late? Is it justice? Yeah, somewhat. But, you know, he lived for 30 years out or 27, whatever it is. You know, he lived his life. And I think that there is some relief, but it's also complicated because, you know, he wasn't the only one involved. It's going to take some years for this to play out. Does it make me feel better? Not really. I didn't have some sense of relief or, oh, I feel better. I want justice. I believe in justice. So, yes, I think that was important. It's important that these next few years play out. So, even though I think that it's important and I'm glad that there's some level of justice, it didn't make me feel any better. I don't feel like this relief or whatever I thought maybe I would feel never happened. So do you believe that there are other parties still alive that were involved? A hundred percent. Yeah. On every side of everything. It's kind of amazing that it went this long without coming out. People always tell on themselves. The truth always finds the light. And I do believe that. And There are definitely plenty of people who knew. And there's also the role of law enforcement. You know, it was in Vegas. There's cameras everywhere. How do you have such a high profile city and no one knows or sees anything? So I think it's complicated. And you believe that Sean Puffy Combs is involved as people are whispering about? That's the kind of stuff I can't even comment on even if I have a thought or a belief that I just I I don't um think that my opinion needs to be in any of of that okay okay let's talk about aim for the heart which is your nonprofit organization when was that founded and what is the mission so aim for the heart became a formal 501c3 in the 90s. My brother could not understand how I run around. I used my own money and I didn't have a formal organization. He thought it was crazy. So my brother actually set it up for me, got the 501c3. And I've still, all these years later, never approached it like a business, although a nonprofit is a business. Mm -hmm. It does help to have that shell, to have the protection I've continued and been sustainable because artists that I work with, like Earl, I still co-manage Earl Sweatshirt. I would say that I don't do much. My partner and youngest daughter, Devony, has really taken over and she does most of the management and most of the work. But I would also say that that if it wasn't for artists like him who give me a dollar off of all the tour ticket sales and people who come back and give, I probably wouldn't have anything in there because I don't fundraise and I don't do grants. 
But my mission is that we become an emotionally literate world, that we do heart work, that we utilize arts as a way for deep conversation. I have a curriculum. I'm about to publish the curriculum. I've been doing it for 30 years and have not published it yet. Where will it be published? And for people that are curious, where will it be published? Aimfortheheart.org. All the information will be on the website. So aim number four, theheart.org. Mm-hmm. And people can email. They can find me at the website. They can go to my name at Gmail. I don't care. I try to respond to as much as I can. And we'd love to come to a school, a facility, a venue near are you. you. Still, are you still doing assemblies? Are oh, you yeah. still doing- I'm not personally doing a lot of them, but I have an amazing team. There is an amazing team of young people that really are helping run the organization. And my hope in the next few years is that I can train people, that I can travel and train people in the work of emotional literacy and that it becomes a household commitment for all of us to do the work on ourselves. We have no saviors. No one's coming to save us. No one's going to heal us. We have to empower ourselves and make a decision that we're going to be healthy and that we start with ourselves. and that, you know, there are many people doing the work now of social emotional learning and social justice and emotional literacy. What I have to offer is I am older and I've lived a little. And so I can help others not make the same mistakes. I can offer my testimony and my experience and and I have a process that actually works pretty well. So I love to share it. Have you ever gotten pushback from any communities of color questioning your intentions, questioning oh, the work? I oh, still do. Yes, of course. Okay. And what is, main, the main, what is the main gripe? What is the even main my gripe? own kids challenge me. You know, I'm still a works in progress. And so I don't always recognize my own bias. I don't always see my own privilege. But my mother and my children have a very different experience in this life because they all present as people of color. And I present as my pale, privileged self. And so in our same home, we have vastly different experiences. And so I'm always being called on to challenge my thinking and to understand some of the things that I teach and how they apply differently to different people. And I'm learning all the time. I don't have all the answers, but I'm willing to show up. And so, yes, I will be challenged as long (laughs) as I'm still here because I spend most of my time in communities of color and in poor communities. And so it's probably important for people to question my intention and for me to answer those questions and to come back to why I even started this as I didn't feel safe in the world. I thought I was doing work to save other people. And I learned that I just wanted to be safe in the world and I needed to save me. And I learned Mm -hmm. some things along the way that I hope to offer and share with people And yeah, some hard lessons in there. Understood. 
So do you pray? And if so, who or what do you pray to? I pray a lot. I meditate and I pray. Meditation for me is receiving. It's more listening. Prayer is more active. And most of my prayer is not um, asking, but my prayer is a giving thanks. It's me stopping and sitting still and being thankful and knowing that there is a spiritual force in the universe. We can use the word God or Allah or mm-hmm. the many different words we use for this one source. For me, there is one source that moves through all of us. And whatever the name is, I in some of my most difficult moments that I didn't know if I could get to the other side, were it not for this source of life and this connection to God for me, I don't know how I would still be here. And so I'm so thankful to, to be in prayer and to be able to be thankful for life. And that if we were shallow enough to think that there's not something greater in the universe moving through all of us and with all of us, I I don't understand how to be here and not know that this exists. And so I say God, but whatever the word that somebody else is comfortable using, it's all the same for me. So yes, my prayers are daily, sometimes formal. Sometimes I'm driving in my car and it's not so formal, but I'm talking to God all the time. Every time I do a class, I ask for guidance that I may touch people in there, that I'm here for the right reasons. And before this interview, I said, I'm so nervous. I never know what I'm going to say, but God, please guide me. I'm just nervous. Stop. Are you crazy? I'm always uncomfortable, but I'm. that's like prayer for me. I literally... Before I went on the thing, I was like, okay, God, help me out here. I don't know why. I I said a prayer too. I said, God, please let my questions be delivered with the pure intention that I intended them to be, you know, that that you would understand that I'm coming from a good place. So I hope so. Okay. So a couple more. If you could travel back in time and change the course of one famous historical event, where would you go and what would you attempt to change? Oh my gosh. That's a great question. I I don't even know if I can answer that. That's such an important question. One historical event that would change the course of history. Yeah. Or if you could even just bear witness in real time to a famous historical event, is there anything you're fascinated with? So many. That's why it's so hard to answer. Uh, I don't know, but definitely a lot of the tragedies that that have happened. I wish that we had a different trajectory. Okay. And where do you think we go when this life is over and done with? Where do I think we go? We are consciousness. So we are souls. We are consciousness. We leave this body and go back to source. Mm -hmm. Agreed. And what do you think you came into this life as Layla Steinberg to learn? And what do you think you came here to teach? I believe that I came to contribute to this work of the heart, that, that all my challenges were so that I could be a bridge 
and that I made a choice when I came here and understood that you have to be willing to be walked over, to walk across, to get to the other side, and that I will give my life and in this life in service of building bridges to all people and a love of land without borders. And so my work while I'm still here and until I'm gone will be that of being a bridge child and a, a bridge adult and helping people get over their limited ideas so that they develop empathy and and know that we all share these same fundamental rights to live and breathe and, and be here. Thank you, Layla. You you were a great sport. You gave a great interview. And I and thank you for trusting me to give me this interview. I thank you. I appreciate you and your work. Oh, thank you so much. Okay. I will talk to you soon. As always, thank you guys for tuning in. I really hope you got a lot out of that exchange. I learned so much. I think that Layla has a fascinating life, and I always wanted to know her backstory, what got her involved in doing the Mike Sessions workshop, what got her involved in her nonprofit organization, Aim for the Heart, and it really puts everything into context, and her story is fascinating, just full stop. So if you want to learn more about the work that Layla Steinberg continues to do, please visit aimfortheheart.org. That's aim4theheart.org. Or follow her on Instagram at Layla underscore Steinberg. And follow me on Instagram at the Allison Kugel. As always, I'd love to hear what you guys think about specific episodes. So please hit me up on Instagram. You can DM me or you can comment under a video. Or please leave me a review or a comment either on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, Subscribe, like, all that good stuff. And I will see you guys on the next go around. Peace. Peace.